Uh, just whilst we're getting organised as well, I um, should say, in case you haven't heard, um, we've been praying for Michael and JJ for a good percentage of time since the summer. And uh, at 5.45am on Tuesday morning, um, JJ heard that she got a visa to come back to the UK. Which is, you know, it has been a long and hard road and, and Michael's pretty much getting to the end of what he could bear, actually. And he is so, so grateful. They are so grateful for the prayers and support of this church and others within the town and just not feeling alone during such a demanding time has been absolutely amazing. Um, and without going into the details of it, <laughs> what's it doing, Peter? Um, um, you know, there's that verse, isn't there, in Genesis, where uh, Joseph says, what you intended for harm, God meant for good. And some amazing things have happened to JJ with regard to her family, and particularly her dad, whilst they've been in the Philippines. And, you know, God knows what he's about, uh, even when we find it frustrating what he's about. <laughs> um, and God has brought good from this. But let's pray for them, because she's hopefully coming back in the middle of this week, um, and, you know, it's been a long period apart and she's now 19 weeks pregnant, so everything is different. So let's, let's be praying for them. And I, I sent an email out, but in case you didn't get it, we, we'd really like to bless them financially. It's been an incredibly expensive time for them and will ongoingly be. So if you want to give anything towards that, then speak to David and um, we would like to be able to do that for them as well, just some practical help. Goodness. Well, as Phil said, I thought, oh, this one will be all right. Uh, to be fair, I've thought that for everyone and I'm quite relieved that this is the last one I have to do. <laughs> Sorry to Catherine and Martin, you have to do the other ones. Um, good. What do we call good? You know, good is one of those ubiquitous kind of words, isn't it? It's a bit like love. We use it for so many diverse things. When our kids come in from school, we say... How's your day been? And almost without exception, the answer is good. It has no qualifier. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean anything terribly exciting. Hopefully, it doesn't mean the same as bad, although you're never quite certain about that from the tone, which communicates absolutely zero. <laughs> How's your day been? Good. And unless we have the Spanish Inquisition, which, to be fair, I am quite good at, we don't get any more information than good. When we say to each other, how are you? Very many of us say, I'm good, thank you. Now, we are not commenting on the moral state of our well-being and choices in life, nor are we really saying anything of any great significance. It's a bit of a catch-all that means I'm not terrible, or even if I am, you probably haven't got the time to listen to it. So we'll go for, I'm good, thank you. When we say to people who have young children, is your baby good, we do not mean... Do they lie or cheat? Have they committed any crimes this week? Generally, what we're saying is, do they sleep? <laughs> Sleeping baby equals good baby. That's how it works, isn't it? We speak about a good book, a good meal, a good coffee, a good experience, even a good friend. And those differ for different people. What I think of as a good meal, you may hate. Fish pie, for example, Simon. <laughs> What I enjoy as a good book may not be your kind of thing. The person who is my good friend may be your acquaintance or maybe you don't know them at all. 
It's all defined by what we think. We even talk about having a good cry, which is kind of the opposite of good. So it's a bit confusing, isn't it? Perhaps some of you were brought up in a similar era to me, where when I think about good, this is what I think of. (laughs) The good life. Tom and Barbara, Jerry and Margot, having their alternate lifestyle probably helped me that it was set in the same place as where I went to school. So I kind of felt an affinity with it. The good life was something that was ethical, wholesome, organic, simpler, sustainable, and quite frankly, a bit mad. But we kind of loved it. And we all sort of aspired to the good life. And perhaps some of us still do. Maybe when you think of good, you think in a more polarized kind of term. You think about good versus evil, the archetypal story, the foundation of every good fairy tale and epic narrative, good versus evil, and hopefully and always good wins. But we know the reality of the tension, don't we? We know what it feels like to be in the middle, to be pulled one way and the other. And if we're honest, we sometimes have to own the relative attractiveness of evil over good. We don't always want to do what is good. Sometimes we want to do what is bad. And we are caught in the tension between those two places. And we feel it in the depths of our hearts. And that's why the archetypal story speaks to us. Because we see ourselves reflected in that And we see it in the big story of the world. We're not always sure about good, are we? Because after all, who wants to be known as a goody-goody two-shoes? Do you? Because when we talk about someone being a bit of a goody two-shoes, we're not really being that complimentary. In fact, really, it's almost verging on a term of abuse, or at least ridicule. Who wants to be known by that term? So what is goodness? What is goodness? Well, let me show you the earth-shattering definition that I have found on goodness. Goodness, the quality or state of being good. See, when you want help with your sermon, that's not helpful. Goodness. You know, I think if I picked on some of you and said, what's goodness? You know when, some while ago, Phil asked us to say what the taste of a strawberry was? And we all went, hmm, tastes like a "Mm, strawberry. (laughs) It's kind of a bit like that, isn't it? Goodness, well, it's just kind of good. (laughs) It doesn't get us very far. So I want to tell you a couple of stories. A couple of stories that seem to me to express something of what we believe that goodness is at a gut level. We might not be able to say it out loud. We might not be able to string the sentence together. But we, yeah, we go, yeah, that's it. That's it. So the first story is about a guy called Charlie Brown. I think it was before Charlie Brown, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Charlie Brown was a B-17 Flying Fortress pilot with the 379th Bomber Group at Kim Bolton in the UK. His B-17 was called Ye Old Pub and was in a terrible state having been hit by flak and fighters. 
The compass was damaged and they were flying deeper and deeper into enemy territory instead of heading home. After flying the B-17 over an enemy airfield, a German pilot, Franz Stiegler, was ordered to take off and shoot down the B-17. When he got closer to the B-17, he could not believe his eyes. In his words, he had never seen a plane in such a bad state. The tail and rear section were severely damaged, the tail gunner was wounded, and the top gunner was all over the top of the fuselage. The nose of the plane was smashed and there were holes everywhere. Despite having ammunition, France flew to the side of the B-17 and looked at the English pilot, Charlie Brown, and saw that Brown was scared and struggling to control his damaged and blood-stained plane. Aware that they had no idea where they were going, France waved at Charlie to turn around 180 degrees. France escorted and guided the stricken plane back to the North Sea and to England. He then saluted Charlie Brown, turned away, and headed back towards Europe. When France landed, he, he told his commanding officer that he had shot down the B-17 over the sea and never told the truth to anyone. Meanwhile, back in England, Charlie Brown and the remains of his crew told everyone at their briefing what had happened, but were then ordered never to talk about it. More than 40 years later, Charlie Brown wanted to find the German Luftwaffe pilot who had saved his crew. After years of research, Franz was finally found. He had never talked about the incident, not even at post-war reunions. The two pilots met in America at the 379th Bomber Group reunion, together with 25 people who are now alive, all because Franz showed mercy and compassion and never fired his guns that day. When asked why he didn't shoot them down, Stiegler later said, I didn't have the heart to finish off those brave men. I flew beside them for a long time. They were desperately trying to get home, and I was going to let them do that. I could not have shot at them. It would have been the same as shooting a man in a parachute. Is that goodness? Is that what we mean? Is that what we feel in our gut when we think about goodness? Somebody who would do that, even though it's contrary to everything that they have been trained and expected to do. Let me tell you another story. This story is of a man named Andrew who was known all his life for selfless sacrifice and good works. He always stood in defense of the defenseless and toiled without tiring, standing up for the downtrodden and underprivileged. As he grew old and people tried to honor him for his well-lived life of service, he was reluctant to accept the praise and attention that his community desired to heap on him. It was then for the first time that he told a story that had burned deep in his heart and was hard for him to relate. Andrew was a young man, 13 years old and living in Austria when the Germans invaded. The Austrians, brave and proud, decided to fight back. In the town where Andrew lived, the men and teenage boys organized and destroyed a power plant that the Germans relied on to continue their war effort. The men and boys all knew this would be, cause great hardship on themselves as well, for they also relied on the power from the plant. But the one thing they had not counted on was the swift and severe retribution that would come from the Nazi invaders. The next morning, before the sun was even up, trucks rolled into town. Soon the sound of marching soldiers was heard in the streets. The men and boys of the town, 12 years old and older, were ordered to the town square. Andrew found himself standing in a line with the other men and boys, still trying to wipe the sleep from his eyes. The commanding officer berated them and told them they were fools to think they could stand against the might of the German army. He told them they were nothing, and their minuscule efforts would not slow down the German war effort but it would hurt them because a price was going to be paid for their rebellion. He then said that every 20th man in the line would be shot. As each 20th man was pulled from the line and marched away, 
Andrew looked down the line and started counting. With horror, he realized that he stood in 20th position. He trembled with fear as the soldiers moved closer and closer to him and the shots started to ring out at the edge of town where the unfortunate men were being taken. As the Germans continued to move down the line, Andrew could see others counting and their eyes turning to him with a look of pity and concern. He found himself wanting to flee, but too frightened to move. Even if he tried to run, the soldiers on the trucks with the mounted machine guns would cut him down before he could get ten yards. But then, in the instant that the last man before Andrew was pulled from the line, the Germans turned their eyes away, and Andrew felt a hand on his shoulder. The hand tightened quickly, and before he knew what had happened, he was jerked forcibly over one spot, and the old man who had been standing next to him moved swiftly to switch positions. Andrew looked up at the silver-haired man, and the man smiled. Just before he was taken from the line and led away, the old man spoke quietly to Andrew. Your life is no longer just your own. Live it for both of us. Andrew watched silently as the old man disappeared from view toward the edge of the village. His heart jumped as the shots sounded, shots that Andrew knew should have been his own. In that instant, tears flowing down his face, he determined he would indeed live his life for both of them. From that day, he had tried to live so that the unknown old man would have felt his sacrifice was well repaid. Goodness. Hundreds of stories like that. Hundreds of the goodness of human beings in the face of atrocity and evil and hardship, self-sacrifice at its best. See, what is goodness? Goodness, or the idea of being good, means that something fulfills its purpose or expectations. So the book is a good book, the job is a good job. Goodness includes some aspect of morality, and for us that's ultimately defined by God. No one is good except God. And goodness, in most situations, has the purpose or expectation of some form of benefit. We see the consequences, we can measure it. The biblical word, the Greek word in Galatians 5.22 is agathosune. And it's mentioned about a dozen or more times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was done about 200 BC. There are no references to that word in secular Greek literature. Should we make something of that? No, let's not. You know, because actually it was still in their culture and their context, all that the writers really did was they put the little bit ness onto the word good. But there would have been an understanding of what goodness was really about in the same way that we don't have the word teachableness. But if we did, we'd know what it was, wouldn't we? Because we understand a culture of being teachable. There's another word used in the Greek New Testament, kalos. If you go to Greece, you have to say kalispera. It means good night, so same word. And some people think it means something different, but really it's kind of used interchangeably, so we don't need to worry about that too much. One of the issues that we have with the word goodness is that either subconsciously or perhaps even consciously, we equate goodness with niceness, don't we? Niceness. But goodness is not necessarily nice. I mean, nice isn't a bad thing, by the way. Someone wrote this. Goodness without love is impossible. It becomes just nice. Have you ever said, oh, that person is nice. They are sweet and caring. Wouldn't hurt a fly. Never say a bad word to anyone. That's not goodness. 
That's niceness. Goodness has guts. A person out acting out of goodness will love the other so much that they may say the hard words. They may say it through a heart of love, with a patient demeanor, with an inner joy, and through kind and gentle expression. Goodness has guts. It's loving. And we know that love is not just like marshmallows around you. It is caring. It is authentic. It has guts. So how do we ground or root goodness? First, as we have recognized already this morning, our goodness is and must be grounded in the character of God. Nothing is good apart from what God has made. Nothing is good outside of the source of God. At the point of creation, in the very first chapter, God made things and he said they are Clues in the title of the sermon, okay. They said, they are good. When he looked at men and women, he said, they are very good. Good was one of the first ever words to describe all that God had made. It is good because its source is in God himself, who is good. And we have to have our goodness rooted and grounded in the character of God. Let me read to you a few scriptures. Is Exodus 33 the Lord speaking to Moses, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In this verse, goodness is equivalent to the presence of God. It's just a kind of a way of expressing who God is, what he's like, that he is there. One who is good, God himself. Psalm 23, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 25, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. Good here is not just soft and sloppy. Because he is good, he instructs sinners in their ways. Because he is good, he wants things to be different. And we find our goodness in relationship to God, in our looking to him, our abiding in him, in being grounded in him and his word. And his, uh, we experience his goodness in our lives. And that is what transforms us in the same way as all the other fruit that we have already talked about over these past weeks. So if believing that goodness is pretty much the same as niceness is one myth, then the second myth is that we can simply be good. Oh, well, they're just a kind of a good kind of person. But actually, that's a myth. Because being good and doing good have to go together. Goodness is love in action. We can't hide goodness under a rock. It's something that's eventually seen. If we are good, we will do good things. That's how it works. Goodness has to be grounded in our discipleship in our everyday relationship, walking with Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fr uh, bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You know, we know that, don't we? When we have a pear tree planted in our garden, what do we expect to see? Thanks, Vicky. 
If we have an apple tree in our garden, we expect to see... If we have a spaghetti tree in our garden... Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's how it is, isn't it? If we are good, we will produce good fruit, the fruit of goodness. In a similar way, a different metaphor, Jesus says a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Have you ever been shocked by what thoughts have passed through your mind? Or what words have come out of your mouth? Or what depth of emotion you have felt in your heart? Lots of you are nodding, that's quite encouraging to me. You know, because actually sometimes we find that what's in our heart is not what we believe was in there, or even hoped that was in there. Because our mouth and our minds and our emotions are the overflow of what's in our hearts. And unless our hearts are good, then what comes out of our hearts will not necessarily be good. And so we need to keep on having our hearts cleansed and conform to the likeness of Jesus. We need to keep feeding in the right things so that the overflow is also good. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, For we are God's handiwork or masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, sometimes people criticize the church, don't they? And they say, oh, these Christians, they're all a lot of do-gooders. Well, yes, we are. Thank you very much. Hopefully we're doing good. Doing good things. The things that God has ordained for us to do. We are his workmanship. Therefore, if we are like him, we should be good. Do good. I know do-gooders is a kind of a slur. But you know, we should be in the best sense. Do-gooders. The people who do good. It should come out of our relationship with Jesus. In 3 John, John says, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. So what does goodness look like? And we look at Jesus, who is perfectly good. You see, goodness is gutsy. Goodness is sometimes about confronting sin and standing up for what is right. The one who is perfectly good walks to the temple and he sees the money changers with their tables set up there, exploiting the poor, demonstrating injustice and unrighteousness. And the goodness in the heart of Jesus is angered. And he turns over the tables and the money clanks all over the floor and he throws them out of the temple. He says, this place is a house of prayer. You see, goodness is not saccharine. It is not nice. It has got guts and courage. And this goodness is shown in the goodness of Jesus at the temple. It is an expression of strength and goodness. Sometimes we think that goodness is weak. But it's so far from weak. Jesus chose the lowest place. And to choose the lowest place is a place of strength, isn't it? Jesus chose to kneel down like a slave at the feet, dirty feet, of his disciples and wash them because he was good and because goodness is like that. The novelist Stephen King, whose books I haven't read because they're way too scary, 
He said this, It's better to be good than evil, but one achieves goodness at a terrific cost. Here's someone that writes profoundly about human character and human nature, and he writes a lot about evil and recognizes that sometimes evil is an easier choice than good because goodness costs. And Jesus showed us that when he washed his disciples' feet. And just a few days later, he went to the cross and he showed us that love, that goodness costs. In fact, sometimes it costs everything. And this kind of goodness, the goodness of Jesus, has to be grounded in our lives. Romans 12 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do we do that? Do we choose that in the small things in our lives, in the everyday, in the big choices, in the global stuff? What, do we choose to overcome evil with good? Or do we in fact choose to join in with the evil? Because frankly, sometimes that's a whole lot easier, isn't it? If a whole bunch of people are criticizing someone, isn't it easier to join in? If everyone's grumbling, isn't it easier to join in? If everyone's just doing the same thing in our world, environmentally, isn't it easier just to do the same thing? It's hard, it's costly to overcome evil with good. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 16 says, Do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Every time we choose to do the good, God notices. No one else may see, no one else may notice, no one else may care. But God sees that sacrifice. Amos 5.15 says, hate evil and love good. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. If you want to know what goodness looks like, it looks like justice and mercy and humility. And Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When it is within your power, to act. Now, how many of us have the power to act and we don't do anything? Every time it's within our power to act, at whatever level, that verse from Proverbs says, do good, be good. Don't withhold goodness when it's in your power to act. And that kind of goodness requires courage and guts and sacrifice, whether that's at a personal level or a systemic level, a local level or a global level. At my previous church, which is quite a long while ago now, just right towards the end, there was, I've probably told some this story before, but there was um, two people, and they were getting inappropriately involved with each other. They were both married to other people, obviously. And nobody knew anything. Nothing had been said. Nothing had been done. But it was evident to those that were close to them that what was happening was far from helpful. And um, so I was uh, training for ministry at that point. I was in my mid-twenties. And I just thought, I need to say something. That, that's what goodness is. And so I, my friend Steve was an elder in the church. Um, we were really good friends, him and his wife. And uh, so... At one point, I kind of 
got myself together and thought, right, this is the moment. And so I, I sat down with him and I laid it all out carefully. <laughs> and I said to him, um, I think that what you're doing is you're committing emotional adultery with this other person. And uh, I said, I don't think anything else has occurred yet, but this is very, very dangerous. And he just looked at me and said, oh, no, no, we're just really good friends. Just really good friends. And I said, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> and uh, he just denied that there was any issues and there wasn't much else that I could do at that point. And it was only, only a number of weeks that he, together with this other woman, went off together, devastating two whole families and the church. You know, sometimes goodness confronts appropriately, doesn't it? It didn't work out how I would have hoped. It risked the friendship. Frankly, it was worth it. But that's what goodness does. But it also does it at a systemic level, doesn't it? I had a cup of tea with Lara this week. You know, that, that's what Snowdrop is about. It's, it's saying not only we will care for trafficked women who have no place to go, and we'll get them back on their feet again, and, and we'll get them integrated back in the community again. It's going to government, which is what Lara is doing now. It's being in the House of Commons and speaking to those in authority and saying, this is wrong. This cannot go on. No one should be trafficked. We shouldn't have to pick up the pieces because no one should be in this situation in the first instance. You know, we love and celebrate our food bank, but we also passionately don't believe in food banks. No, it shouldn't be that in the UK today, we are having to feed thousands of people across the UK from food banks. They are part of the infrastructure of our nation now. We don't believe in that. So when we have our MP come and sit on our NAF sofas, we tell him. I tell you what, you don't want to get the other side of Phil and Ruth when they're telling him. They tell him. He knows that we don't agree with food banks. Because goodness says that we will confront the systemic the global as well as the personal, and we need to do that. Nelson Mandela said, if there are dreams about a beautiful South Africa, there are also roads that lead to their goal. Two of these roads could be named goodness and forgiveness. I find it so interesting he chose those two words. Forgiveness for evil that has already occurred and goodness that overcomes evil that is present. That's the way forward to change things, isn't it? You know, the verse we're looking at comes from Galatians 5, verse 22. And in that passage, it talks about putting the sinful nature to death, about doing away with that and conforming to the likeness of Jesus, allowing the Holy Spirit to be at work in us so that we produce the fruit of the Spirit. At the end of chapter 6, these verses are written, and with this I finish. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We need to sow lots of little seeds of goodness, because then we get a big harvest of goodness. We need to sow the right things. If we're sowing the wrong things, we'll reap a different harvest. He says we need to sow the seeds of goodness. He says, don't give up. 
Let us not become weary in doing good. Actually, it's relatively ignored as doing good. It's easy to become weary. Sometimes the seeds are knocked out of the grounds, like Ruth was saying last week. Sometimes they're trampled on. Sometimes they're discarded. Do not become weary. Keep on doing good, planting those seeds in the ground. And do good to each other. The community of faith. Because we want this community, the church, to be a community of goodness. Because Jesus was good and people were attracted to him.